You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. I'm Kirsten, and today I will be reading from Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6, and Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Kirsten. All right, I'm going to pray as we get started here. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we investigate this question, doesn't Christianity hinder morality? And as we investigate your word, as we investigate our culture's answer to this question, God, would you guide us and open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us today? Help us to be transformed, not only to see you as our great creator, not only to see you as the one who should dictate how we are to live, but open up our eyes and our hearts, God, to see how you love us and invite us to reciprocate your love as we live in your ways. We pray that that would happen today, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Should, should, it's a really powerful, powerful word. And whether we realize it or not, we every single day are making choices based on what we think the answer to should is. We are making choices about whether to help someone or harm them. We're making choices about whether to forgive someone or hold a grudge against them. 
We're making choices about telling the truth to that teammate at work, even though it's going to go bad for me if I do, versus lying to them and making ourselves look better than we are. We're making choices about whether should I feed these sexual desires or should I resist them? How much food should I eat, right? Should I cheat on my taxes? How do we make these kinds of choices? Well, I think philosophy can actually help us to learn a little bit about how humans make these kinds of choices. All morality systems, whether Christian or not, uh, use this rubric for how they make choices. Uh, Underneath every choice is a belief in one or more of these three things. And I'm only laying this out for you because I think it's going to be helpful for us as we get into things later. So just hang with me for a second. These three things, origin, objective, and observation. Here's what I mean. Origin, what we believe about morality comes from what we believe about human origins, especially whether we believe that there's a creator or whether we are merely the results of millions and millions or billions of years of adaptation. So, for example, if we believe that humans are simply evolved meat with the ability to think, that's going to lead to a certain kind of morality, right? Likewise, objective. What we believe about morality comes from what we believe about our purpose as human beings, our objective. For example, if we believe that the purpose of our existence is to achieve personal happiness, that will lead to a certain kind of morality, Observation, what we believe about morality comes from what we observe in our own experience, okay? In in our own experience of moral cause and effect. For example, if we live a certain way or we observe someone else living in a certain way and it does yield the results that we're looking for in life, then we might determine that morality is right, Or if we conversely lived a certain way or we watched others live a certain way and it didn't yield the results that we were looking for, then we might determine that that morality is wrong. You with me? And so you might pick one or two or more of these as most important, but whether we realize it or not, we make moral judgments based on these factors. And so in many ways, I was telling someone earlier This is probably the most important question in this whole entire series that we're looking at because everything else that you do flows from it. Everything about your worldview hinges on your beliefs in these three variables. And so let's look at them now in a totally different way. Let's look at, we we talk about worldview being goggles that we're wearing, right? How we see the world around us. Let's look at the different goggles, two different kinds of goggles, and our question, okay? Doesn't Christianity hinder morality? And what what I'm going to argue is that it depends on how you, uh, sorry, it depends on your goggles, how you answer this question. So how you view humans, how you view God, and how you view the world. So I'm going to look at two two answers to this question. One is, yes, Christianity hinders morality because humans are like a canvas that we paint. And I might be like, what? What are you talking about? Don't worry, I'll, I'll explain that. The second answer might be, no, Christianity does not hinder morality because humans are clay in the potter's hand. And again, I'll go into that as well. 
To look at this first point, though, this first response, we're going to not get into Scripture till the very end of it. We're going to look at it from the lens of just sort of what is going on in our culture and how are people viewing things. And so the first view, again, humans are a canvas that we paint. Now, if we don't believe that there's a creator, we have to believe that we are the creator. Amen? And so it's not just a matter of morality, but remember, morality is based on how we view ourselves and in general, sorry, in specific, our, our own individual selves and humanity in general. And what I'd like to propose to you is that the prevailing wisdom in our culture today is that each of us are whatever we make ourselves to be, okay? Our identity as a human being, it's fabricated. It's then curated, right? And then, and then we promote it on social media. So our identities are fabricated, curated, and then promoted. And, and if we decide one day that we don't like our identity, we can just change it the next. Because our identity as a human being isn't predetermined, nor is it defined by someone or something outside of ourselves. We are like this blank canvas. We're ready to be painted at any moment. And our secular culture isn't the only group of people who see things this way. Plenty of Christians, whether we're conscious of it or not, we've adopted this worldview. Because we, we may not be aware of it, I want to actually quickly do a worldview test Okay? I've never done a test in my sermon. This feels very classroom-like, but just stick with me. Okay? I think this is going to be really helpful. Whether you're a Christian or not, I'd invite you to do this worldview test with me and just kind of evaluate on a scale of 1 to 10, if you want to write down your answers on your little note thing that you got there on the way in, or just kind of keep a mental register of this. I got this uh, grid from Tim Keller. In a scale of 1 to 10, how would you... Uh, rate how strongly you believe in these ideas, okay? One being totally disagree, 10 being I completely embrace that, okay? Truth, you cannot have any certain knowledge of objective truth, okay? Rate yourself, one to 10, do you totally disagree? That's a one, totally agree, totally believe that, it's a 10. Identity, you have to be true to yourself, Okay, true to yourself. That's where you find truth. Freedom. You should be free to live as you choose as long as you don't hurt anyone. Scale of 1 to 10, where are you at? Happiness. You must do whatever makes you happiest. You can't sacrifice that for anyone. 1 to 10. Morality. Everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong themselves. Scale of 1 to 10. Where are you at? See, the basic gist here is that we, who we are and our morality is subject to change depending on how we feel at any given moment. Depending on what makes us feel free, for example. Freedom is so important, Right? Depending on what identity we've chosen for ourselves, whether that's a gender identity, whether that's getting our identity from our work, whether that's getting our identity as an artist or an athlete or, or any sort of subculture that we identify ourselves with, whether that's uh, depending on what we... Sorry, what am I saying here? I don't even know what I'm saying. Uh, 
Where am I at? Uh, where, who we are and our morality is subject to change depending on what we believe, and this is kind of putting the, the exclamation mark on the end, what we believe will make us happy, right? That's the end that we were made for or that we exist for. And so if you would, just for a moment, let's evaluate this worldview. I'd invite you to evaluate this with me. Because at first glance, I'll be honest with you guys. At first glance, I read these things. I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. I mean, it's attractive, right? There's a lot that seems right and good about this, but let's just evaluate for a moment whether this actually works, okay? And, and to do that, we need to turn to a philosopher. Uh, Calvin, you guys might be familiar with Calvin. Not John Calvin, but Calvin and Hobbes, Okay. <laughs> Um, and I hope you can see this because this projector broke this morning. I hope you can see this. Oh, wow, that's big. Okay, so here's how it begins. Whenever I need to do some serious thinking, I go for a walk in the woods. So he's going to go for a walk in the woods with Hobbes. There are always a million dress, uh, distractions out here. Next. Uh, I don't believe in ethics anymore. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means. Get what you can while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to do and let others argue about whether it's right or not. Okay? And then, what does Hobbes do? He pushes Calvin. Why'd you do that? And he's in the, you can't really see him there, but he's all covered in mud. And, and Hobbes says, you were in my way, now you're not. The ends justify the means. I don't mean for everyone, you dolt, just me, Calvin says. Okay? Okay, so this is the funny version, but let's just think about this for a minute. Keep evaluating. How is morality determined in the worldview that we're looking at, in the canvas worldview? Rather than there being this universal, transcendent reality, this worldview says that we discover reality from within. We create, that's why, did you notice that for each, if you go back to the last before the Calvin and Hobbes slide, go back to the one right before it. Um, notice that all of these at the center of the worldview is you. The individual is at the center. Because if we are a blank canvas, then each person is then their own moral standard. And, and, and this has a lot of contradiction in it when you try and place it alongside other people who are doing the same thing. And so what our culture does is we try to figure out uh, how to live with each other by claiming a new use of the word tolerance, okay? So we try and use this word tolerance as a way of saying, if we can all get along autonomously, deciding for ourselves, we're happy. And, and again, that, that sounds nice, but then we, we, we use this word tolerance in a very practically incoherent, unsustainable, and dishonest way. Because the way that our culture uses the word tolerance, it, it invites differing views so long as they cohere with ours, which isn't tolerance, by the way, okay? So I'll give you a quick example. Uh, uh, in June, Emily and I were going to a concert, and we were going to a concert on Capitol Hill. We used to live in Capitol Hill for three years when we were first married. I love that area of Seattle. I love the people of Capitol Hill, but unbeknownst to us, we show up and we can't find parking. And, and, 
nowhere. I mean, like nowhere even near to the venue. We ended up walking almost an, a mile to get to the venue. And we were like, what is going on here? All the, all the streets are blocked off. Oh my gosh, this is the biggest block party I've seen in my whole life. There are so many people here. We showed up during Pride Week. And we didn't realize it. And so we're walking around, and what's happening? I mean, there's all kinds of cultural expression going on, right? And, and there's all kinds of promoting of a certain worldview that's going on, whether it's subversive or blatant. It's everywhere, right? And I want you just to imagine with me for just a moment what it would have been like if I'd grabbed a megaphone and I'd started promoting a Christian worldview in that setting. Do you think I would have been tolerated? Probably not. Probably not. The canvas worldview says that we should have uh, freedom unless it hurts someone, but everything has the potential to hurt someone when we disagree on what's right and good. Okay? And my point, don't hear me wrong, my point in bringing up this Pride Week stuff is not... Uh, to say that Pride Week should, you know, hire me to be their keynote speaker next year and, and that it's wrong for them not to do that. My point, it, it has nothing to do with that. My point is that they should be honest about what they really believe about tolerance. That's my point, okay? We wouldn't, uh, in the same way, I wouldn't want someone from there to come here with their megaphone and promote their view either. I, I'm intolerant in that sense. And I think that's normal, and good. And I want to take that just to even push it a little bit further as we think about tolerance. I think we'd all agree that it's not always right to tolerate someone's subjective morality. Lowest hanging fruit on this argument is always Hitler, right? Hitler always shows up. It's like, yeah, of course, play the Hitler card. But maybe think about even just the 9-11 attackers, right? They had their own morality. Who are we to say that their morality was wrong? right? Or, or a racially motivated murderer. Who are we to say that their morality was wrong? Just because we don't like it? See, we believe we shouldn't tolerate the views of those kinds of people because we can all agree that their views are wrong. And so even if we say everyone has the right to determine what is right and wrong for themselves, what we mean is, as long as I agree with them. That's what we mean. We want autonomy, but we also want ultimate authority, and we can't have both. And so the blank canvas view of human morality only works until we realize that we actually have to work together, and we actually have to have agreed-upon values in order for society to not descend into total anarchy. And this is why our beloved city is trying to unite around some common shared dogmatic beliefs because we need it in order to function. I'll give you a quick example of it, okay? This is the secular creed. Why are, are, are we putting these on our lawns? And, and you, you might have one of these on your lawn, and my point here is not to attack you if that's the case. My point is that everyone knows that we need common beliefs in order for society to work. And this is a secular attempt to accomplish that. But the problem is, I actually agree with pretty much everything on this, uh, what is that, sign, on this sign, but what I mean by it might be completely different 
from what someone else believes when they put that sign up. So much so that it could cause our culture to be very divided, just hypothetically speaking, right? <laughs> hypothetically. And so my goal right now is, isn't to divide us more, friends. That's not my point. My point is to show that Christian morality offers a better, more truthful, more honest, and better solution. And so I'd like to just share that with you now, if you'll continue with me. Let's do the worldview test now from a slightly different angle, okay? Let's look at those same headers, and I'd like you just to say from 1 to 10 where you're at. Uh, Just write it down or, or whatever, okay? So truth. We can know the truth, and it will set us free. Jesus said that. John 8, 32, he said, we can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is believing in Jesus, and he will set us free, he says there, from sin. How about identity? We have to be true to who God made us to be, not true to ourselves, True to who God made us to be as his image bearers. God made us in his image, the Bible teaches us, Genesis 1.27. And we are then to live in the way that he has designed for us because we are to bear his image. Freedom. We are obligated to live as God has designed. And we need him to free us in order for this obligation, which doesn't sound very pleasant, to turn to become love. And we're going to go into that in a lot of detail, but that in basis is uh, John 15.10. Jesus tells us that love is what frees us to obey God. Happiness. We must do what pleases God and blesses others. That's what we're commanded to do. Okay, so it's not, we don't exist for the purposes of our own happiness. That's not the end that we're working toward. But here's the thing. Love, which we're required as Christians to do, love requires sacrifice. Doesn't sound like happiness at first, but listen to this. That leads to true and lasting joy. When we love It leads to true and lasting joy. And the best example of this is God coming as love incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're told in Hebrews 12 too that it was the joy that was set before him that motivated him in love to endure the cross. Morality. Only he who gives us life has the right to decide how we are to live. Only he who gives us life has the right to determine right from wrong. And I could quote a billion verses. It's like the whole Bible teaches us that one. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might hear these things, and you might see the beauty of it right off the bat. You might be like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But my guess is that initially, this is absolutely repulsive. And, and a part of why that might be the case is the Bible teaches us that the gospel seems like foolishness until you believe. And so apart from belief, is there anything that someone who doesn't believe might be able to find beautiful or true or wise in what we see here? I, I, I think that there are some things, and I'd like to flesh that out 
now by looking more deeply at the scripture that we heard earlier in the service, the one that said that humans are clay in the potter's hand. Let me read that again. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So the prophet Jeremiah spoke these words around 600 B.C., but they're just as true today as they were then. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because his entire ministry was spent prophesying doom and gloom, and no one believed him. Sounds great, right? They, they even tried to kill him. And he told Israel that God would use the pagan nation of Babylon to judge them for their wickedness. Because Israel had broken their covenant with God, they had violated their promise to love him and to obey him. And in turn, their idolatry, it actually led to widespread social injustice because our horizontal relationships are massively affected by our vertical one. And so Israel was oppressing the weakest and most vulnerable people in their society, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants. And Israelites were even going as far as sacrificing their children to other gods. God is furious, furious at all of this evil. And so not only does he tell Jeremiah to warn Israel of the impending judgment, all of those things that he warned, all of God's words eventually come true. All of them. And what does any of that have to do with morality? What does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, though God made his redeemed people, he formed them, this nation of Israel, they lived as though they were autonomous from him. And though God made all of humanity, all human beings, we live as though we are autonomous from him. Like Israel, we live as though we are the ultimate authority on right and wrong. And so God gives Jeremiah this metaphor to remind us of God's transcendence. God is a potter. He forms and creates and shapes, but it's also a reminder of his eminence, his closeness, because we are clay, and we are the ones that this great and powerful creator is working with. We are the ones that this creator is forming. And Jeremiah here is echoing what another prophet had said only about a hundred years earlier. Isaiah, in chapter 29, said, you turn things upside down, you get them backwards, you mess it up. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? The point is that there is no greater arrogance 
or insult than for the creature to challenge the authority of the Creator. We get it wrong when we decide for ourselves, in effect, that God is the clay and we are the potter, or that it's all clay and and we are the potter. And this this idea, if you really think about it, it's absurd. And it leads us to determining what's right and wrong for ourselves. And so let me tell you why I believe that seeing ourselves as clay in the potter's hand is more attractive and true and wise than seeing ourselves as a blank canvas. First, the pressure for me to create my own meaning and to create my own morals, it's both confusing and it's crushing. How am I supposed to go about making all this stuff up for myself? And what am I going to do when someone else makes up their own thing that's different than mine? How do I even live with that person with different meaning and morals? How can I possibly bear the weight of all of that? To to speak conversely then for the Christian worldview, placing our trust in the Creator, in the potter, is both clarifying and freeing. It actually... He, he gives me meaning. He gives me morals that I can stand on because they did not originate with me, but with the one who made me. And he's the one who made all human beings, and he made all of us with the same purpose. He designed us a certain way, and he bears the weight and the burden of the role of creator, so we don't have to. It's so freeing. Second reason why I believe it's better to see ourselves as clay in the potter's hand, while autonomy sounds really nice at first, like we said, through it we're actually caught up in a perpetual state of having to recreate ourselves, which is totally exhausting. Because these chosen identities that we forge for ourselves, they don't give us the satisfaction that we seek from them. And so we've always got to be searching and searching and searching for a new one. But receiving our identity from the one who made us and the one who is remaking us in his image, it allows us just to rest. We just get to rest in him. Thirdly, why I think it's better to see ourselves as clay in the potter's hand. Though many people claim they prefer autonomy, Our culture regularly protests the chaos and injustice that is caused by it. All the time. All the time. A wisely ordered just society requires us sharing a common purpose with love and with harmony, which is only made possible by surrendering ourselves to God and His ways. And so that's why. But that doesn't address the problem and the problem is that even though even if we like the idea of being uh, under god as the one who determines morality for us we still have the inner conflict with our sinful prideful desire to subvert his authority the way that jeremiah had talked about this in chapter 18 was he said that Israel was spoiled in the potter's hand. 
And likewise, our battle for autonomy, it spoils the beauty of being made in God's image. And so we need Him to, as Jeremiah said, rework us into another vessel. We need Him to remake us into His image. We need gospel, friends. We need good news that frees us to love God and to love what He loves. True freedom is to become who we were made to be, and God does that through giving us of His love. And there's gospel right here in the book of Jeremiah. You might not have known that. Earlier I told you that Jeremiah prophesied doom and gloom, uh, but very rarely he also gave messages of mercy and hope, okay? And and, and here's the, the main framework of it. Basically, despite Israel's gross immorality, God's mercy and faithfulness would have the final word. And despite humanity's gross immorality, God's mercy and faithfulness will have the final word. Here it is in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, listen, this is the good news. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I want to just pause there for a second. This week, uh, Emily and I celebrate our 21st wedding anniversary. And uh, yeah, praise God. It's a testament to God and His faithfulness and His grace. And uh, now we've been married as long as we were single. This year is the, is the year that that happens. And um, I, I've had on my heart and my mind the marriage covenant a lot this week. Just thinking a lot about uh, God's grace to us specifically as a couple, um, but just about the weight, but also the goodness of that commitment and that covenant. And it wasn't until I was about to go out on my anniversary date with Emily and I was wrapping up writing this sermon that what, is just, what we just read hit me in the most wonderful way possible, in a way that I hadn't noticed before and I want to share with you. God is saying that His covenant, His commitment, if you will, was held together with a moral code that he gave to his people. He uses the word law here. And that his people here, he says, were like his wife. He made promises to them, and the moral code were their promises to him. He upheld his marriage covenant, but they cheated on him. And friends, all of us are in that same boat. God upheld his marriage covenant to us, but we cheat on him. So what does God do? He loves us so much that he makes a new promise. He talks about it here, a new covenant. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This covenant is different from the last one. It's altogether new because it's not just with Israel anymore. It's with all of humanity. Do you catch that? Everyone everywhere will know the Lord. How? How is that going to be made possible? It says two ways. Through the forgiving of our sins. That's an allusion to Jesus' death for our sins on the cross. But also through the wedding vows, through the law. This time, God wouldn't just ask his people to follow his moral code, his law. This time, he would actually write it on their hearts. And friends, this transforms our view of morality. It completely changes it. Do you see that? Because we we tend to see morality and obedience as just these rote religious duties that we have to somehow do, and they, they're awful, they bring us no sense of happiness or joy or fulfillment, but we've got to do them because God is the one who's in authority. I think it's part of why people run away from Christian morality. I think it's part of why people don't see it as wise and attractive because they just don't get this. I think a lot of Christians, we don't get this. But you see, morality, it's not just about authority. It is about that because God is the potter. But morality is also about love. It's about love. God gives us the moral code as his loving, <laughs> as his loving wedding gift to us. Do you see that? He gives us his moral code as his loving wedding gifts. And he so desperately wants us to have this gift that he sends his son to remove the barrier of sin that stood between us. And he sends his spirit to write his covenant on our hearts. So beautiful. I wonder, will you accept his wedding gift to you today? Let me pray and then we'll respond to God together. Father, we're so grateful that you have gone so far beyond anything that we could ever ask or think in order to bring us to yourself. And we do confess that oftentimes we see morality wrongly. We need our hearts and our, and our goggles to be transformed that we might see things truthfully rightly as you have revealed them. God, help us to see you as the potter and us as the clay in such a wonderful way. I invite you to shape us. God, help us to see you as our husband and us as your wife and the gift of your love as a way of inviting us to live with you and in your ways. Help this to be transformed, God, for us in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.